This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you all uh, again today. Today, I would like to review how intelligence agencies became obsessed with LSD as a tool for extracting memories. I'll summarize two lethal experiments in the United States and a nightmarish set of studies in Canada that bear a surprising resemblance to the Jason Bourne thrillers. This lecture focuses on LSD, not its use by Timothy Leary, Baba Ramdas, Woodstock, and popular culture, but how it was used by the intelligence agencies for very different purposes as part of the war on memory. Following Stalin's show trials and the recriminations about the Korean War POWs, the United States was determined to mount a brain war offense. CIA Director Alan Dulles laid out the challenge very clearly. The fear was there and the political posturing was there, but there was very little science to move the program forward. Thus, the CIA turned to academia to explore the riddle of persuasion and memory. Academia was poised to defend the country as long as government funding was provided. Grants to some 80 universities poured in from the CIA, principally through the MKUltra program, which flourished in the 1950s and 1960s. Called by some the Manhattan Project of the Mind, these various programs spent billions of dollars in clandestine studies that focused on behavioral control, social influence, and propaganda. In addition to the government agencies, private foundations also supported research, and many of them were in turn covertly funded by the government. Cornell's Institute for Social Ecology was one of the key vehicles for transferring CIA funds to university researchers. Its origins reveal an extraordinary backstory peopled by remarkable individuals. CIA Director Alan Dulles's son, Alan Macy Dulles Jr., was badly wounded in the Korean War and came home disabled from a head injury. Dulles turned to Cornell neurologist Harold Wolf to care for his son. Wolf tried to help rehabilitate the wounded Dulles and gave him various odd jobs in his department. Wolf was already vetted by the CIA because of his service to OSS during World War II. He was one of America's most prominent neurologists and had personally studied with Pavlov. Wolf was an expert in headaches and the subtle interplay of brain and behavior. He was also editor-in-chief of Archives of Neurology and president of the American Neurologic Association. Wolf was a broad thinker, a riveting lecturer, and a caring physician who was convinced that stress and emotional response influenced the course of most diseases. He was also described as an austere, autocratic, humorless, and fiercely competitive man who could be quite intimidating. Wolf had such a one-track mind about work that one of his close colleagues wryly commented, if a dog came in and threw up on the rug during a lecture, Wolf would continue and not skip a beat. Dulles was grateful to Wolf for treating his son and offered to support Wolf's research if he would help identify other researchers who might be able to advance the CIA's research agenda. Wolf turned to his colleague, Lawrence or Larry Hinkle, 
who is professor of medicine at Cornell to help establish the Institute of Social Ecology. Larry was a big, gruff, sardonic man who had no tolerance for fools and carried himself with a military bearing. But behind that exterior, he had a delightfully warm, if peppery, sense of humor. Hinkle was a brilliant internist who made major contributions in cardiovascular epidemiology. Like Wolf, he was convinced that stress was potentially deadly, and thus he emphasized the importance of studying disease in the context of the social environment. So the name social ecology or human ecology refers to studying how humans relate to their social environment. Except that in this case, Cornell's Institute on Social Ecology supported research on an unusual environment where interrogation, brainwashing, and LSD might coerce secrets from the enemy. The Institute funded a vast portfolio of research on LSD, sensory deprivation, and isolation until 1965. Hinkle became progressively disillusioned with the Social Ecology Institute, complaining that the CIA was increasingly in the driver's seat and focused on their, their own operational problems and not on basic research about human ecology. Furthermore, Hinkle had some reservations about some of the CIA staff who were detailed to the Institute, and Hinkle left the board. A letter from intelligence operative George White to Dr. Wolf perfectly encapsulates Hinkle's concerns about the agency men they were working with. White wrote, what is the possibility of working out a graph indicating the state of panic of the enemy based upon the varying degree of pressure used? Wolf replied smoothly, yours is a very provocative notion, and I'm sure it could be documented. Warm regards. So who was playing whom? Was the CIA using innocent, naive academics to pursue agency objectives, or were the academics steering the agency where they wanted to go? Obviously, it depends upon the details of each collaboration, but Harold Wolf was no defenseless pawn. When Cornell, years later, started to assess the checkered history of the Institute, the review committee ruefully acknowledged how forceful Wolf was. The committee chair said, from my own recollection, Harold Wolf was the kind of fellow who did exactly what he wanted to do. I don't think the CIA laid out any program for him. I couldn't imagine Harold being, Harold being told what to do by the CIA. To which Larry Hinkle replied, he couldn't even be told what to do by the administration of this university. While the liaison between the CIA and Cornell's social ecology was the most notorious front for supporting brainwashing research, the CIA had relationships with several other foundations as well. The Macy Foundation supported studies that were closely aligned with the agency's brainwashing portfolio. Macy supported Harold Abramson, an early LSD researcher. Abramson reported that under LSD, his psychotherapy patients started revealing material they had previously withheld. The CIA wasn't particularly interested in psychotherapy, but was very intrigued to learn that LSD might facilitate disclosing information. Charles Geschichter provided another unlikely source of funds for CIA behavioral research. On the face of it, he was a prominent Georgetown University pathologist who studied breast cancer. 
However, he was also funneled funds from the CIA into the Geschichter Foundation. These funds supported studies of interrogation and use of LSD in prisoners. Geschichter funded LSD research by Harold Abramson in New York and Jolly West in Oklahoma. The foundation's other interests included discovering toxic compounds in mushrooms and ways of incapacitating people or inducing sleep. When the scandal about the CIA's research eventually broke, a Senate committee interviewed Dr. Geschichter about his foundation's involvement with the CIA. Senator Kennedy asked Geschichter why the CIA wished to have a hospital-based safe house at Georgetown to conduct research. Geschichter replied evasively, I haven't the slightest idea. And then he attributed all of this to the university's sloppy bookkeeping or claimed that he couldn't remember. In fact, the agency was studying emotional stress, working on knockout drops, searching for compounds to trigger toxic psychosis, studying how amnesia could be induced by concussions, and using radar to cause sleep. That last study, Geschichter remembered, noting that it really worked, but that the dose was tricky. If you gave too much radar, you injured the heat center of the brain the way you cook meat. Numerous universities accepted funds from MKUltra through one account or another. When this information emerged in the 1960s and 1970s, there was outrage, perhaps a degree of outrage that is hard to understand today. Then we were mired in the Korean War and had a visceral wariness of authority. CIA, military, Nixon, assassination, conspiracy was all one giant monster. And those associated with any part of it were distrusted. Some of the MK Ultra sponsored research richly deserved this notoriety. But there's no sin to receiving research support from the CIA. The issue has to do with the details of the research and the strings attached to the funding. Some researchers proposed questionable studies. Wolf's proposal still makes one gasp decades later. Potentially useful secret drugs and brain-damaging procedures will be tested to ascertain their fundamental effect upon brain function and upon mood, thought, behavior, memory, and speech. As these drugs are investigated, a concurrent search for antidotes or countermeasures will be concluded. This is scary enough, but the next sentence in the proposal is horrifying. Where any of these studies involve potential harm to the subject, we expect the agency to make available suitable subjects and a proper place for the performance of necessary uh, experiments. In other words, Wolf is saying that when he anticipates harming a subject, he expected the agency to provide a suitable victim, a place to do the experiments, and by implication, to dispose of the subjects afterwards. The CIA's portfolio of classified studies about hallucinogens was vast. It included projects that attempted to define the effective dose of LSD, how it could be surreptitiously administered, whether it could trigger psychosis or incapacitate or embarrass a government leader. MK Ultra studies examined if one could develop tolerance for LSD or if an antidote could be administered. Throughout the United States, unwary people found themselves surreptitiously dosed, and the results were variously hilarity, enlightenment, panic, psychosis, and suicide. 
a former prisoner described his experience as an uninformed subject. I didn't know what I was getting into. We kept getting handed a glass of what looked like water. Drink it, they said, and then blam, I don't know what. The roof and the sky exploded. Crazy things happen. I mean, really crazy, like not real, but happening. It was like was I was in a jungle someplace with wild animals all around me, all these crazy beasts trying to kill me. One of the CIA's most colorful agents, George White, worked on many LSD projects with MKUltra and Harold Abramson. A colleague described him saying that George could charm the hide off from a rabid dog. White was an old school OSS agent whose rough and tumble persona appealed to the shady side of some American scientists. In White's notorious Midnight Climax project, he rented an apartment on Telegraph Hill in San Francisco and hired prostitutes to slip LSD into their customers' drinks to see if they would confide information more readily. One CIA agent disclosed, if we were scared enough of a drug not to try it on ourselves, we sent it to San Francisco where White would experiment with it. They tried aerosolized LSD at a party in Marin County, but it didn't work. The wind dispersed the drug. These various safe house escapades surreptitiously drugged people and observed their responses off and on for 14 years. News of the MK Ultra programs eventually leaked out, and at a Senate hearing in the 1970s, Senator Kennedy lamplasted the program, saying, certainly no one would question the need for drug experimentation, but no one should experience what we've heard in terms of the gross misrepresentation about side effects, the complete failure of notification of those participated. They were completely unprepared to cope or deal with these tragic after effects. The MK Ultra program administrator, Sidney Gottlieb, was a brilliant, eccentric PhD chemist. To his colleagues, Gottlieb was referred to affectionately as the Beast or Merlin. He has been compared to Q in the James Bond series and less charitably characterized as a mad scientist. Gottlieb was introduced to LSD in 1951 by Dr. Abramson, and subsequently Gottlieb personally experimented with the drug many times. But he didn't just experiment on himself. When he was in the office, he routinely slipped LSD and other drugs into his staff's food, drinks, or cigarettes. Frequently, he described the results as interesting or enchanting, but sometimes bad trips resulted. One surreptitiously dosed CIA agent fled the building in terror and reported that every automobile that came by was a terrible monster with fantastic eyes. It was hours of agony. It was like a dream that never stops with someone chasing you. The effect of LSD varies greatly depending on the setting in which it's taken. In the early days, when it was administered as an adjunct to psychotherapy, therapists reported that bad trips were rare and that the drug promoted insight and euphoria. On the other hand, when LSD was administered in threatening surroundings, or worse yet, given surreptitiously, terror ensued. John Lennon and his wife, uh, Cynthia, went to a dinner party where their host spiked their coffee with LSD. Cynthia reports that John was crying, banging his head against the wall. I tried to make myself sick and I couldn't. I tried to go to sleep and couldn't. It was like a nightmare that wouldn't stop. None of us got over it for three days. 
Gottlieb tried to explain the rationale for, for MK Ultra to Congress. In the judgment of the CIA, there was tangible evidence that both the Soviets and the Red Chinese might be using techniques of altering behavior, which we did not understand, and which would have implications of national survival. We attempted to harness the academic and research community to provide badly needed answers. I considered all of this work to be extremely unpleasant, extremely difficult, extremely sensitive, but above all, to be extremely urgent. I would like to describe two of what Dr. Gottlieb described as extremely unpleasant studies, in this case with lethal effects. When I was a resident at Massachusetts General Hospital, I was fortunate to work with Chester Pierce, this tall, graying, African-American psychiatrist radiated humor, gentle warmth, and pragmatism. He was a font of stoic wisdom. Dr. Pierce and I had been talking about the capriciousness of funding our careers in the many blind alleys in research. It was a typical conversation about one of his favorite themes, the unpredictability of life itself and the necessary necessity of humility, at least until he brought up killing an elephant. When governments wanted to know, while governments wanted to know if LSD could accelerate interrogation, scientists wondered if such drugs could provide a model for understanding psychosis or if they could stimulate creativity. In fact, the whole field of psychiatry was mesmerized by the drug. How could a minute dose so profoundly disrupt attention and perception? What might that tell us about the origins of schizophrenia? The CIA wasn't particularly interested in the physiology of schizophrenia, but was very interested in drugs that might affect thinking and agitation. Now, back to the elephant. Male Asian elephants go through recurring bouts of musk once or twice a year, during which they become exceedingly aggressive. The Oklahoma Zoo, Oklahoma City Zoo, had a 14-year-old elephant named Tusco. Could LSD elicit must-like behavior in Tusco, and could that teach us something about agitation? Thus, Chet, Pierce, Jolly West, and a veterinarian, Warren Thomas, designed their elephant experiment. On the day before administering LSD, they shot Tusco, the elephant, with a dart containing penicillin, as a kind of placebo control. The elephant looked up in surprise, trumpeted in protest, and was restless for two or three minutes before returning to his typical day. The next day, they planned to give him LSD. But how much LSD? They already knew that a dose of 0.1 milligram of LSD could trigger hallucinations in humans, but no one had the slightest idea how much to give an elephant. You can't assume that because an elephant weighs 30 times as much as a human, that the dose should be 30 times larger. That's because species metabolize drugs differently. The researchers shot Tusco with a dart containing almost 3,000 times the human dose. They described what happened in an article in Science in 1962. Tusco began trumpeting and rushing around the pen. However, this time, his restlessness appeared to increase for three minutes after the injection. Then he stopped running and showed signs of marked incoordination. He began to sway. His hindquarters buckled, and it became increasingly difficult for him to maintain himself upright. Five minutes 
after the injection, he collapsed. In his private diary, Jolly West described how incredulous he felt, he felt while watching Tusco die. Jolly wrote, just shot him with the LSD. He whirled around to face the source of attack. He's very aggravated, very restless, and running around trying to shake the syringe out. Judy, his companion elephant, seems to be making an effort to comfort him. She has brought some food over and put it down near him in a way that she knows from past experience would interest him. Dr. West then concluded his diary, writing, elephants can be said to possess a fantastic sensitivity of the central nervous system to LSD, and this may suggest something about the chemical nature of the annual phenomenon of must. It was a harebrained study to determine if drugs could elicit psychotic-like behaviors. The study was designed by brilliant people with good intentions. It brought us no clearer to understanding the biological bases of schizophrenia or the induction or treatment of agitation. The agency was not bashful about testing LSD on humans. I wish I could have said testing human volunteers, but there was very little volunteering associated with the human testing, and there were lethal consequences. In the 1960s, there was wild enthusiasm about the use of LSD as an adjunct to psychotherapy and a route to personal growth. Dr. Abramson was one of its earliest boosters. Abramson knew about the risks of surreptitiously dosing people with LSD, given his first experience with the drug. He was working in his laboratory when, unknowingly, he was accidentally exposed to the drug. He wrote about what happened over the next few hours. I was confused and thought I was going to die. I started to think of my life insurance premiums, and I was really upset. Once he realized that this was all due to inadvertent exposure to LSD, he thought, well, this is nothing. I'll be over this in a few hours. And I went right to sleep. Abramson continued to evangelize about the drug, poo-pooing the dangers and claiming that he had never seen an adverse effect with LSD. The most notorious LSD-induced adverse effect involved a lethal experiment on Dr. Frank Olson, a scientist doing classified work at Fort Detrick. An enormous amount has been written about the case, but I'll focus on what the CIA did and how they dealt with the situation afterwards. On November 19, 1953, Olson and his colleagues attended a CIA retreat. Sidney Gottlieb spiked the attendees' Quantro with LSD, and Dr. Olson had a severe adverse reaction. He became agitated and depressed, felt that others were making fun of him or criticizing him, and thought he had made a fool of himself. He returned home and for the next few days continued to feel these symptoms. On November 24th, his wife took him to CIA headquarters. The agency flew him to New York to consult with Dr. Abramson. That evening, Abramson made a house call to the Statler Hotel where Olson was staying, and Olson returned to see Abramson in his office the next day. Abramson thought Olson would calm down if he went home for Thanksgiving. Olson was flown home to Washington. However, he decompensated so alarmingly upon arrival that the agents flew him back to New York for another consultation with Dr. Abramson. 
Olson returned to the Statler Hotel, accompanied by his CIA watchers, but he fell to his death from his hotel room on the 10th floor of the hotel during the night. I say fell in air quotes because there was uncertainty whether it was an accidental fall or a suicidal jump. His son believes he was pushed out of the window because the CIA felt he was a security risk. Today, it's unknowable whether he jumped, fell, or was pushed out of that window. Regardless, the CIA dosing was covered up by the agency. The CIA made up a cover story alleging that Olson had a prior history of mental illness and that the suicide resulted from that mental illness. The events behind Dr. Olson's death were kept from his family and children for 20 years. The CIA didn't tell the family about the covert LSD dosing, but merely reported that Olson had fallen or jumped out of the window, ostensibly in confusion or agitation. The Olson family learned about Dr. Olson's surreptitious LSD drugging years later when CIA secrecy was pierced by revelations of another human brainwashing disaster in Canada. It seemed the agency couldn't help itself from asking questions like, how are memories shaped and erased? And could LSD be a useful probe for memory retrieval or destruction? Much of this work on memory and perceptual isolation culminated in a disastrous series of studies in Montreal. The Canadian MK Ultra studies made their way into fiction in Robert Ludlum's books and movies about Jason Bourne. According to Ludlum, the CIA had taken a young man who had great personal unhappiness, brought him to a special institution where a kindly psychiatrist wiped all memories from his brain and then reprogrammed him to become Jason Bourne, the consummate assassin. The plot, aside from the assassin training, was based on true events in Montreal under the aegis of Cornell's social ecology program and the CIA. The psychiatrist's name was Ewan Cameron. In 1951, intelligence officials met with Montreal psychologist Donald Hebb to ask what he thought might account for brainwashing in Korea. He theorized that brainwashing was facilitated by sensory isolation. When people are deprived of sensory inputs, they don't think clearly and become susceptible to persuasion. The agents were intrigued about this and asked him to expand upon the idea. He rapidly received funding for secret studies on sensory deprivation. Hebb recruited healthy young students and put them to bed in a small experimental chamber where they were isolated, isolated from all environmental stimuli. The idea was to study them for six weeks, but most of the subjects couldn't stand it for more than two or three days. These observations on perception were not particularly exciting to the intelligence agencies, but the agency grew very attentive when Hebb and others started examining if isolation might make subjects more suggestible. They placed subjects in isolation chambers and tried to interest them in all kinds of things, tapes promoting dental hygiene or discouraging smoking or tapes that discussed poltergeists. When subjects had nothing else to do but to listen to such things, they became quite absorbed in them, 
and after the experiments had concluded, the subjects remained interested in these topics. Meanwhile, across town in Montreal, Ewan Cameron was appointed as the founding director of the Allen Institute for Neuropsychiatric Research. With considerable startup funding, the Institute was endowed with faculty positions, laboratories, and a clinic on the edge of McGill's campus. All were housed in a 72-room, rather intimidating limestone mansion called Ravenscrag. The building lived up to its ominous appearance under Dr. Cameron's leadership. Cameron grew up in Scotland, the son of a stern Presbyterian minister. He obtained top-notch training and moved to Manitoba, where he began writing papers. He loved new gadgets and was ready to try about anything to help his patients. Dehydration therapy, heat therapy, exposure to red light, cod liver oil, ketogenic diet. None of these were particularly effective and his methods were imprecise. He introduced insulin shock therapy to North America. One of insulin's hazards is that high doses elicit such profound hypoglycemia that convulsions and coma result. Cameron deliberately induced comas for two to five hours and repeated the process for up to 50 days in treating severely ill psychiatric patients. He found that even this intensive and dangerous process was not effective. But his conclusion was that insulin didn't work because he was treating people too late in their illness. He was impatient with the slow course of psychotherapy and thought things would proceed far more efficiently if he could start with a blank slate. Cameron's idea was that old memories were troublesome and should, should simply be obliterated with electroconvulsive treatment, insulin coma, and LSD. Once this was accomplished, he believed the solution lay in prolonged sleep therapy and sensory deprivation, supplemented by psychic driving or repeated messages played back to the patient over a tape loop. These were desperate interventions that stopped at nothing. Perhaps one might be more tolerant of his efforts if he had focused only on severely mentally ill patients who had failed all treatments and been relegated to custodial care, or on patients who knowingly volunteered for this extreme treatment. But Cameron used this approach as a matter of routine on all sorts of patients, housewives with mild anxiety and depression, executives with anxiety, alcoholics, and chronic schizophrenics. Tucked away in the foreboding Allen Institute, he set up a ghastly assembly line that he thought would conquer mental illness. Meanwhile, his reputation flourished. He became president of the American Psychiatric Association and advocated for improved treatment of mental illness and talked about his innovative approach to obliterate memories. Cameron and Harold Wolf of Cornell encountered CIA director Dulles, Dulles's numerous extramarital affairs created a problem with his wife. Mrs. Dulles was disconsolate about these constant affairs, and the CIA suggested that she meet with Dr. Cameron to see whether his special treatments in Montreal might help her forget about her husband's dalliances. She, de she declined his treatment. Dulles, however, was enchanted by Cameron's ideas about LSD and electroconvulsive therapy because they seemed to promise a quick way of shaking up an enemy to make him talk. 
Cameron treated mental illness with every tool available. What Cameron did differently was to use all these interventions to excess, to cloak the interventions in a scientific veneer and remain blind to their failures. He advocated for ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, but in very high doses. If some ECT was good, then more ECT must be better. And furthermore, the memory disruptions, which were side effects of ECT back then, were one of the goals of Cameron's approach. He administered hundreds of ECT shocks to some patients and supplemented the ECT with insulin coma. Once ECT had destroyed memories and regressed patients back to their infancy, he thought it would be a simple matter to reprogram them. Cameron also used all kinds of drugs on his patients, amphetamines, barbiturates, and of course, LSD. Typically, patients would be dosed with five or six different drugs simultaneously that sedated them, stimulated them, and made them hallucinate. Patients didn't have a choice in the matter. At the start of the 20th century, sleep therapy with sedatives became popular in the Soviet Union. The approach was based on observations that agitated patients improved after sleep, and that sleep provides some respite or oblivion from mental suffering. Typically, patients were sedated for two weeks at a time with transient awakenings for toileting and feeding. It was a risky business. Unless careful nursing care was provided, there was a risk of pressure sores, pneumonia, or pulmonary embolus. At the Allen Institute, sleep was maintained with a mixture of drugs. Patients were wakened periodically, fed, toileted, and then sedated again to resume their long-term sleep. Patients were kept deeply asleep 20 hours a day for about three weeks. Cameron had little patience for psychotherapy. Early on, he started taping sessions with his patients, editing what he believed to be the crucial tidbits, and playing them back for his patients to study. He required them to write out their thoughts about the tapes and to bring the journal to their sessions. He called this automated psychotherapy, or in later years, psychic driving. Gradually, he started linking all of these steps together, memory ablation with LSD and convulsive therapy, sleep learning and psychic driving into one toxic cocktail. He became enamored with linguaphone, a device that purported to teach foreign languages during sleep. The company published uh, an appealing concept that sleep learning would reclaim a third of your life for self-improvement and personal enrichment. Cameron saw an advertisement for the device and thought it would be a powerful therapeutic tool for psychiatric brainwashing. He broadcast tape recordings through pillows while patients slept or through a helmet while patients were awake. Cameron was convinced that by playing the appropriate messages, he would change his patient's thoughts. He tried to distill each patient's core issue into a succinct tape loop and thought if patients listened to this tube repetitively, they would make faster progress in their subsequent therapy sessions. He called these loops dynamic implants. The CIA was absolutely enchanted by the process. He claimed this psychic driving led to major breakthroughs. As he acquired more experience, he pushed the dose higher and higher, delivering psychic driving 10 to 20 hours a day for 10 to 15 days with patients 
in a quasi-sensory isolation room. One of Cameron's colleagues recalled a patient forced to listen to, no, it's not true that my mother-in-law is trying to poison me. She is a very nice woman. Well, maybe that sounds like a sensible message to emphasize, but Cameron had other ideas as well. He thought that a patient's defenses had to be torn down before a new constructive message could take root. A woman admitted for postpartum depression had to listen to this tape. Do you realize that you're a very hostile person? Do you know you're hostile with the nurses? Do you know you're hostile with the patients? Why do you think you're so hostile? Did you hate your mother? Did you hate your father? He would play such negative messages repeatedly for seven to 10 days and then switch to more positive statements for a few weeks. The messages went on and on for weeks and sometimes months, bombarding patients with criticism, alternating with support. Janine, you are running away from responsibility. Why? You don't want to take care of your husband? Why? You don't want to take care of your children? Why? You like to take care of your children, Janine. You like to take care of your husband. Madeline, you let your mother and father treat you as a child all through your single life. You must let your feelings come out. It's all right to express your anger. We all do. Cameron was encouraged to apply for CIA funds to continue his work on psychic driving. In January 1957, he applied for support from the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology, and his proposal was rapidly approved and supported for three years. Cameron was sure that his techniques were helping patients. The data looked good to him, exceptional even, but his charts and tables had no real foundation. It's not that he falsified records, he just disregarded evidence to the contrary. He made every kind of mistake that contemporary clinical trials are designed to forestall. He was inconsistent in his eligibility criteria for the study and enrolled people with vastly different diagnoses, as well as people who were receiving other treatments in addition to his. If patients didn't respond to treatment, Cameron dropped them from the study as if they had never been enrolled. When his psychological tests gave the wrong answers about treatment effects, Cameron simply overruled them by saying that his clinical experience and judgment were more important. The goal of the treatment was to erase patients' memories and bring them back to a regressed state. Then the patients were to be changed with psychic driving administered while awake or asleep. All would agree that Cameron was successful in achieving his first aim, obliteration of memory and regression. The problem was that some people were left with vast chunks of their memories obliterated. As to the second goal, implanting new ideas via psychic driving, it wasn't so clear that it worked. Despite his early reports claiming success, people started having doubts, and the CIA concluded that his intervention didn't live up to expectation. Science depends upon keeping an open mind. Resolute until the end, Cameron could not conceive that he might be wrong. He recognized neither his faulty research nor its flawed ethics. Upon Cameron's retirement, a committee was formed to evaluate his program. The hospital located 79 patients who had received intensive psychic driving and compared their fates with other patients treated around the same time. First off, there was little to suggest that Cameron's intervention achieved glowing success in terms of long-term outcomes. Both groups of patients 
required further psychiatric hospitalizations. Both had impoverished social adjustment, and only a minority of the patients were symptom-free. More importantly, about 60% of Cameron's patients reported that they could not recall vast swaths of their memories. Cameron died in 1966, but it took another 10 years before the scandal blew up and the lawsuit started. Lawyers obtained Cameron's proposals to Cornell Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology and traced the funding from there back to the CIA. That CIA connection infuriated people, but ultimately it was Cameron's application itself that was so damning. He had crisply proposed, quote, the breaking down of ongoing patterns of the patient's behavior by means of particularly intensive electroshock supplemented by intensive repetition of the prearranged verbal signal during which the patient is kept in partial sensory isolation and then placed into continuous sleep for seven to 10 days. With this unnerving combination of interventions, Cameron destroyed patients' memories, but failed in implanting new thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Instead of having a powerful secret weapon to use against enemies, the CIA was itself targeted with litigation and bad publicity. We did learn an enormous amount about LSD and learned how to disrupt memories with high doses of convulsive therapies and LSD, but the work didn't lead to extracting secrets from the enemy or persuading them to defect. The LSD war on memories was over. Thank you for your attention. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.